0: Um, but this morning, uh, we are starting a, a new lesson, you guys, as, as well as the Bereans in the Old Testament. And so we'll be looking at lessons from the divided kingdom. so the period uh, in Israel's history, where we primarily find it in First and Second Kings and, and some parallel passages in Chronicles. Um, and I know that sometimes when you mention Old Testament history, right, and, and I was watching some of your faces, you know, this morning, sometimes the, the natural response is, oh, oh, good, I'm excited for that. Maybe I should have joined one of the other Sunday schools, but it's going to be it's going to be great. And you know, having spent a lot of time preparing for this lesson coming up uh, over the next period of time here, I have just grown more and more excited to get into this. Um, and I hope you will be too. But as we look back into the Old Testament, we need some some background, and so we're going to do a, a quick background of the Book of Kings. And really, I'm going to treat First and Second Kings as a single book, and and in their their message, their theme, and and their consistency, they really are one book. And so we've got to understand some things about the book of Kings as we move into it in order to get the most out of what God's word has for us. And so the first thing we need to understand is the time frame. So the the book of Kings goes from about 970 B.C. when Solomon takes the throne to roughly 561 B.C., sometime when Judah and Israel are still in exile. They have not returned yet because the author does not mention the return from exile, which surely he would have. So it takes us all the way from Solomon through exile, but they haven't come back yet. And it was written shortly after that because, again, it doesn't mention the return. So this period of roughly 400 years, and it's an extremely crucial period in history for us to understand because most of the rest of your Old Testament that comes after this are the major and minor prophets written during this period of history. So if we don't understand what God is doing with the nation of Israel during this time, then this portion of your Bible is not going to contain as much context, and you're not going to get as much out of it as really we need to. To put it in perspective of, of the major and minor prophets that, that are in the Old Testament, this period of time covers Elijah and Elisha. That's in the book of Kings itself. But also the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. All of those are written during this period. Now, pop quiz. Which of the prophets were not included in that? Anybody catch a couple of those? Malachi, that's one. Zechariah. Haggai and Joel. Other than that, All of those prophets write during this period of history. So if we're going to understand the context of their writings, we need to know what is going on. So what about the author? We don't know. The author doesn't identify himself in either of the books. Some have suggested that perhaps it's Jeremiah. As a homework assignment, you can compare the last three verses in 2 Kings to the last three verses in Jeremiah and and see why some think that might be the case. But, But we really don't know. And that's because the author didn't feel it was pertinent information. What about the purpose? All right, so this is Old Testament history, but it is not a textbook. The purpose of Kings is not merely to give us all the details about which king came after which king in both of the kingdoms to see, you know, who's the best at memorizing king lineage. That's not the point. The book of Kings is a history with a theological purpose. The whole point here is for God to be able to say, this is what I was doing As the events on the planet unfold. And if you think about it, how awesome would that be for us? If we were to watch our favorite news feed in the morning, whatever that may be, and and as the the talking head there was describing some event, at the bottom we saw a little banner, right, one of those scrolling banners go by that said, this happened because God was displeased with so-and-so. Or, hey, this happened because God was pleased with the faithfulness of, that would be great, we would learn a ton. We don't get that now, but we can look back in Kings, and that's exactly what we have. We have a history where we're given the theological purpose of all the events that we're going to learn about. Okay, and there's the basics. What about the themes? Well, there's two major themes that we're going to see repeated over and over and over. And really, they're sort of flip sides of the same coin. You could almost consider them a single theme. And that is the disobedience of the people contrasted with the faithfulness and justice of God. We're going to see that this morning in the passage. We're going to see that throughout the entire study. And when we talk about God's faithfulness and justice and the way that he presented that to the people during the Old Testament period and the way that he interacted them and and explained what he expected and what may or may not happen, the way that he primarily did that was through covenants. That was how God said, look, this is what you can expect. This is what I expect. It was through covenants. So we've got to look at a couple of those if we're going to understand the backdrop for the book of Kings. There's two primarily important ones, the first being the Mosaic Covenant. And this one's going to get referenced a ton, both directly and indirectly. Mosaic Covenant we find in Deuteronomy 28. So this is before the people have entered the Promised Land. Moses gathers the entire nation, and God says, here's what I want you to explain to the people. When you go into the land, if you are faithful to follow me, if you're faithful to obey my commands and my statutes, here's what I'm going to bless you with. And he gives them 14 verses of blessings. Here's all the things I'm going to do for you, God says. On the flip side, if you go into the New Promised Land and you forget me, and you begin to worship other gods, and you're disobedient, here's 54 verses of curses. Now, why did God give 14 verses of blessings and 54 of curses? Is he just mean and vindictive? No. God knew which path was going to be more important for the people to understand. And so he outlines exactly what's going to happen. This is some of the things that are described there and. Deuteronomy 28. I would encourage you to go back and look at that in your personal study as we begin to enter kings. But but here's some of the things that God says, look, if you don't follow me faithfully, here's what's going to happen. Again, this is before they ever enter the promised land. We're going to see these things fulfilled rather dramatically as we study through kings. So the Mosaic Covenant is a basis which, which will be brought up again. The second most important one is the Davidic Covenant. That's found in 2 Samuel 7. This was When God told David, Here here is how I'm going to bless you and your lineage in the times to come. And we're familiar with that one because, even more so than the Mosaic in the New Testament, that one is brought up more often. But the Davidic covenant is extremely important. And again, we'll even see it in today's passage. Those are the two primary ones. There are others, smaller covenants that God makes with individuals. For example, He made a covenant with Solomon in 1 Kings 9. That was a. A private one. It wasn't for the people writ large, but it was the same structure. God said, if you follow me, here's what's going to happen. And if you don't, here's what's going to happen. And God got very specific with Solomon. He said, if you end up deviating from faithful worship of me, the people are going to end up in exile and I'm going to destroy the temple. We're going to see that as well. So these covenants are important as, as we move through this theological history to see what God is doing. So there's the basics and the themes. last thing that I think we need to understand before we get into it is the connection with the New Testament. And that's always important, studying the Old. Eric brought it up this morning, but everything is profitable. It all has a purpose. And we need to understand how this particular piece of Old Testament history is connected to the New Testament. There are innumerable ones, but a few to, to point out. The institution of the kingship is really here. Now, I know, yes, the, the kingship has been around. Saul was already a king, and David, before we get to the divided kingdom. But but the kingship here is, is highlighted in this books, obviously, by, by the title. And that thread carries through to the New Testament. Right? Those of you that were faith builders, not just today, but have been here for a while, and we studied Mark. In Mark chapter 1, it says Jesus came on the scene when he began his preaching ministry. And what was the first thing that he preached about? The arrival of the kingdom of God. Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of of the kingship that we see instituted here. And then more specifically, the the critical roles of prophet, priest, and king. These three will interact all through this book. So we have the prophets. Their role is to come and explain the intentions and the, the directions of God to the people. We have the priests. Their role is to make sure that the people and God's relationship is clear and pure. And the king is to govern the people in the name of the Father. Three separate roles, and we're going to see them interact even today. And we know that that obviously carries through the New Testament because then we finally see one man assume all three roles and do it perfectly. Then we have God's justice is shown to be perfect even when delayed. We're going to see some some short-term delays of God's justice in the book of Kings. I just showed you some of how that happens in relation to the covenant. But we know that's an important theme because while we see it on a national level here in the book of Kings, on a human level, that still happens. God is going to judge humanity writ large, but it hasn't happened yet. But it's coming. And finally, at the end of the book of Kings, the people are in exile, awaiting a perfect, just king who is powerful enough to save them from their current predicament. And that's exactly where we are today. We are still awaiting the arrival of our king to assume his throne in his permanent fashion, but it's coming. It's coming. So with that as a background, hopefully you're a little more excited to get into the book of Kings because it is unbelievably rich and pertinent. So with that, we'll, we'll kick it off. These, These frameworks here that, that we've talked about. We're, we're going to start in 1 Kings 11, and you might think, well, that's not much of a beginning. You, what happened in the first 10 chapters? Right? For those that were not here as we study through the life of Solomon, we've covered those. So we walked through the life of Solomon when we studied his, his life and his writings. But just to give us a, a background to get a running start, since we're going to start in chapter 11, the context, the first 10 chapters, right? Solomon assumes the throne, and initially he is fully committed to God. He is 100% all in on worshiping the God of his fathers. And they build the temple. Right? This was a huge day for the nation. They'd been waiting for this for generations. Right? They build the temple. Solomon gathers the entire nation, and they dedicate the temple. Right? For those of you that were here, you remember the numbers of sacrifices were staggering. And Solomon gives an unbelievably humble, obedient, focused prayer of dedication for the temple big day for the whole nation. And in that prayer, Solomon urges the people to wholehearted devotion to follow their God. In 1 Kings eight fifty seven, he says this, May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances which he commanded our fathers. And then in verse 61, speaking to the people, Solomon says, let your heart, therefore, be wholly devoted to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as at this day. So things are going well. Right? The early part of the kingdom, God has blessed Israel with prosperity and with power and with influence, the likes of which they have never known. So things are looking good. But things change. We get into a, chapter 11 and things are going to deviate sharply. God's going to explain what's going to happen here in this deviation in two proclamations that he makes to the people. In today's passage, one to Solomon and one proclamation to Jeroboam. And as we go through those, what we're going to see is that this theme is the overriding point of the author as he gets into this theological history. Allowing anything to usurp the primary place that God has as the solitary focus of our worship will bring discipline, but... God will maintain his faithful promises that he's made to us. That's what we're going to see. So if you will, turn to 1 Kings 11. We'll read verses 9 to 13 to see the first of these two proclamations. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And he had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem which I have chosen. And so we get to to 1 Kings 11, verse 9, and it says God is angry with Solomon. We're like, whoa, we, we just kind of ended on a high note in chapter 10. What went wrong? Now, this is a sharp deviation. But if you go back to verses 3 and 4 in 11, it, it gives us kind of the, the history in between the early part of his reign and, and where we are now. Chapter 11, verse 3 says, Solomon had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away from other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Are you you seeing a theme there? So we find out that Solomon allowed himself to accumulate a thousand wives and concubines. He had deviated from God's commands. He had compromised with the statutes and the ordinances that had been laid out before him. And this deviation, although bad, is not the primary reason that God has an issue with Solomon in verse 9. All right, As, as tempted as we might be able to think that, oh, well, clearly God's going to be angry. Yes, but look at verse 9 again. Now, the Lord was angry with Solomon. doesn't say because he had a thousand wives and concubines. He was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord. So here's the issue. The issue is Solomon compromised on the commandments that were clearly written in the Mosaic Law. Before the people ever went into the promised land, God said, when you go in, you're going to ask for a king. And he explained that it would be better if they didn't have one, if they were a theocracy. But he said, you're going to ask for one, and I'll give you one, but, but here's some things that are going to happen as a result, and, and here's some guidelines for the king. And In Deuteronomy 17, 17, God gave this guideline specifically for the king, although it did apply to everyone. It says, the king shall not multiply wives for himself, or else, get this, his heart will turn away. (laughs) It's almost like God knew what was going to happen. 250 years before Solomon, God says, if if the king has a lot of wives, it's going to turn his heart away, and therein lies my greatest problem, God says. So we see that Solomon has a divided heart. He started off singularly focused on his worship to the God of his fathers, but he allows this compromise through not following God's laws to divide his heart and his heart has turned away from from being focused on the God of his fathers. So idolatry here is the issue, the means is Solomon's many wives. Now, the many wives was bad in and of itself, right? Don't, Don't get me wrong on that. But it led to something worse, which was to the lack of singular focus of worship on the one true God. Because Solomon did not stop worshiping God. Right, he built the temple. Even in the later days, the temple is still there. It's still functioning. They still have all of the required feasts every year that God required in the law. The priests are still offering the sacrifices. So Solomon is still worshiping Yahweh. However, we can see the division of his heart in a practical way in his construction projects. We're told in 1 Kings eleven seven. 7, Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and one for Moloch, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. So here's the situation. Solomon started off with the temple to God, and that was the highlight of the entire nation. That by itself. But now we have the temple to Yahweh here, and we have a temple to Chemosh here, and we have a temple to Moloch here, and a temple to Ashtoreth here. Now there's a multiplicity. He's allowed his worship to be divided He didn't abandon worshiping God. He just added to it. By doing so, Solomon encouraged the rest of the nation to walk into idolatry as well because of his position. Now we're told that uh, part of what angered God as well in verse 9, that Solomon's heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Now the author brings this to our attention, because he wants us to understand that Solomon was given some pretty clear marching directions. Now, God appeared to Solomon the first time at Gibeon, and you know that story. That's where God said, ask for whatever you want. And Solomon correctly said, I need wisdom if I'm going to govern well. And God said, great, because you didn't ask for wealth or power, I'll throw that in as a bonus. Right? That was a direct vision that God gave to Solomon. But God appeared to Solomon a second time after that dedication of the temple. So the entire nation is there. Solomon prays this great, humble, focused, obedient prayer. And then God appears to him in 1 Kings 9. And if you want to turn back, you can, but I'll read it. 1 Kings 9, he gives Solomon the covenant that I mentioned a moment ago. And he says, if you follow me, here's what's going to happen. But if you don't, 1 Kings 9, verse 6, but if you or your sons indeed turn away from following me, And do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, exile, and the house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. Destruction of the temple. God doesn't just tell Solomon this. He visits him personally to give him this instruction. He's highlighting the fact that this is critical to me. You have to understand how serious I take this, God's saying. You follow me, it's going to be great. You worship idols, and it's not going to be good. He does that personally. The author reminds us of that and said, look, Solomon should have been very clear on this. So there's the divided heart. The next thing we see is the divine response. So God's going to have a very specific response here to Solomon. And he says, the Lord said to Solomon, now notice just quickly, it says the Lord said, this time he didn't appear. So this is likely through a prophet. God said, I already gave you the personal communication and you've already discarded it, so we're not going down that road again. So the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this, this idolatry, I will surely tear the kingdom from you. Now that verb, tear, is an active, emphatic verb. right? If we wanted to kind of move that into, into modern day speak, God says, Solomon, I'm going to rip the kingdom out of your hand. He wants Solomon to understand this is not going to be a smooth transition of power from one to the other. This is not going to be an orderly progression from you to your son or someone else. God says, because of what you've done and the seriousness of it, this is going to be messy, it's going to be ugly, and it's going to leave some scars. I'm going to rip it out of your hand. This is a, a serious sentence. Matthew Henry says it this way, Um, Solomon had given God's God's glory to the creature, and therefore God would give Solomon's crown to his servant. Because the second thing that we see here is that God says, not only am I going to tear this away from you, but I'm going to give it to a servant. I'm not even going to give it to someone with royal blood. I mean, Solomon had a lot of sons, right? He It's not going to be one of them. It's not going to be a noble house of Israel. It's not going to be someone well-known and wealthy. I'm giving your kingdom to a servant. Because that's the way that God or that Solomon had treated God. So God proclaims this sentence that this kingdom is now going to be divided. It's not going to be one thing. But despite the seriousness of the sentence, we see in the same proclamation, God proclaim his faithfulness. We see that in the last part of, of this section. In in verse 12, he says, Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. So God says, the first way I'm going to show my faithfulness is in delayed fulfillment. I'm going to let you finish being king the rest of your life, Solomon, but I'm going to take it away from your son. Now, why would God do that? If this is such a serious issue, why would he say, you know what, I'm going to wait until you're gone? Because he's faithful. Because he made a promise to David. I mentioned the Davidic covenant, Second Samuel chapter 7. This is Second Samuel 7, verses 12 to 15. God speaking to David says, "...when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name." So that's Solomon, because he's the one that constructed the temple. "...and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me when he commits iniquity. So he's acknowledging that Solomon's going to mess up. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul. So God says, David, I'm going to give the kingdom to your son. And he's going to make some big mistakes. But I'm going to let him keep the kingdom. God made a promise to David, so... He honors that in the delayed fulfillment of his, his justice. The second way he proclaims his faithfulness is in the gift of a remnant. We see that in verse 13. God says, however, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So God says it's not going to be immediate, and I'm not going to take it all. Most of the kingdom I'm giving away, but I'm leaving you with one tribe. Now, again, why would God do this if the seriousness of Solomon's idolatry is such a big deal? Well, he gives us the two reasons. For the sake of my servant David, we just read his promise to David. So he says, as part of that promise, I'm I'm not going to take everything away. And the second one is for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. I love this. Again, this goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. So before the people entered the land, when they had been wandering and only had a a tabernacle, a tent to worship God. He gives them this promise in Deuteronomy 12. But when you enter the land, you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come. God says, once you go in and take the land over, I'm going to choose one spot, and that's going to be the primary location where you interface with me, and I'm going to dwell there. And when we study the temple, hopefully you guys remember the the smoke coming out of it where God would proclaim his presence to his people. And he says, you're going to come there, and I'm going to bless that place. And then we see that fulfilled when Solomon built the temple and dedicated it. And and again, in that personal appearance God made to Solomon after the, the dedicatory prayer, 1 Kings 9, 3, the Lord said to Solomon, I have heard your prayer and your supplication, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house which you have built by putting my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. God made a promise. So even though he's he's dispensing justice, he's being faithful to his prior promise to the people. Like how one commentary says this, in this double limitation of the threatened forfeiture of the kingdom, there is clearly manifested the goodness of God. Not, however, with reference to Solomon, who had forfeited the divine mercy through his idolatry, but in order that the promises God made to David and the choice of Jerusalem might stand immovably as an act of grace which no sin of men could overturn. God says, look, even though you've messed up big time, you can't make me default on my promise. I will keep it anyway. That's a great thing for us to hear. So what is the application of of this for us? Looking at Solomon's divided heart and, and God's divine response. Well, the first and most important is that everyone is subject to idolatry. If the wisest man on the earth granted a special appearance from God twice and given wisdom beyond any other man could allow himself over time to compromise and be slowly turned from a single-hearted devotion to God to something else, if he is vulnerable to to that, then I guarantee you, you and I are as well. Despite the fact that we may not want to admit that. Now, like Solomon, most in this room are not likely to abandon God altogether and say, you know what, I'm done with the God thing. I'm going to go worship this rock. It's it's not going to go that way. It's going to be things that we add into our worship of God, which is just as much idolatry as worshiping a rock. Because God ought to be the single and solitary focus. So what would those look like for us today? What kinds of things end up being the other temples we construct in addition to the temple to God? Well, some of them we're aware of. There are things that we know we have to watch out for because they're bad, and we know we shouldn't let them take priority. Wealth, success, fame, prosperity, reputation, pride. We know these things have a way of creeping in, and and so we're often on our guard to fight against them. We have to be wary, but I think it's the good things, the things that are even biblical in and of themselves that are the tricky ones for Christians. Because anything, even a good thing, that we allow to take the place of God who should be the only item on our to-worship list, anything else we add to that is an idol. Even good things like family. Family is a good thing. It's God-ordained. We have God-ordained obligations to our family. But... If we let our family assume a role of priority in our lives, meaning all of our time and decision is focused only on what we feel is best for the family, our emotional state is completely dependent on what's going on in our family, our sense of self-worth and accomplishment is only depending on what our family looks like, then we have just constructed a temple right next to the one that God should own. Jesus himself said this in Matthew 10, 37, Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Those are some hard words. He continues, whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He said, look, those are good things. You ought to love and serve them without a doubt. But they cannot be allowed to take an equal footing with the worship of me, Jesus said. Family is an example. Ministry can be another one. Likely some of you in this room know a a pastor, a missionary, someone who who started off with a zeal for God, and over a period of time they burnt out because they allowed their ministry to assume such a role of focus and priority in their lives that it became what they worshipped, and their own spiritual relationship with Christ was sort of a secondary nature. Even ministry can be an idol. Was anyone at the Q&A we had with the missionaries last week? That was a a great thing to be able to hear from those on the field. One of the things that struck me that one of them said was, you know what the greatest threat to our, our ministry on the field is? It's not caring for our own spiritual health between us and God. That was the greatest threat. Because the ministry itself can become an idol. So the question for you is, what have you and I... Let creep onto our to-worship list. That list ought to have one thing alone on it. If anything else is there, it's idolatry. That ought to be something we consider this week. And secondly, when that happens, God will discipline. Because he's faithful. And he needs to for our good. But when he disciplines, he will maintain his faithfulness to the promises that if you are in Christ, you have in this book. Discipline is never easy, it's never comfortable, but God will discipline while at the same time being faithful to mold you in to what you will eventually become when we assume the character of Christ when he returns. That ought to bring hope and comfort. All right. So there's the first proclamation. That was God speaking to Solomon. Now we're going to see him give a second proclamation to Jeroboam. So we're going to move ahead in the narrative a little bit. We skip from from verse 13 all the way to verse 26. And God had told Solomon, I'm going to give your kingdom to a servant. But he didn't tell him who. He just said it's going to be a servant, no name. So the first thing we're going to see here is that God's going to reveal the adversary. Quickly to mention, in the section that we're not going to cover today, in verses 14 and 23, God raises up two other adversaries. In verse 14, he raises up an external adversary, Hadad the Edomite. And in verse 23, we're told that God raises up another adversary, reason of Damascus. So early on in in Solomon's reign, he he was free from war, free from external strife, because he was following God wholeheartedly. In fact, in 1 Kings 4-5, Solomon said, But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. Well, now, because he's left that solitary focus of worship, here's what the kingdom's going to look like. Solomon's already got an adversary to the north. That's the adversary in Damascus, Reason. And he's got Hadad and Edom to the south. He's surrounded by adversaries. And then we hit verse 26, and now he has one from inside the country. He's got adversaries on both sides of the kingdom and an internal one. Let's read verse 26 to 28. Then Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zerida, Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. So he's got these external ones, but but now there's, in addition to that, a rebellion internally. Now this was the reason why he rebelled against the king. Solomon built the millow and closed up the breach of the city of his father David. Now the man Jeroboam was a valiant warrior, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he appointed him over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. So God has now revealed the adversary. The servant he's going to give Solomon's kingdom to is, is Jeroboam. So what do we know about this guy? Well, he's an Ephraimite, so he was of the tribe of Joseph. That'll become important in a moment. But we don't know a whole lot else about him other than that, that he was a servant that apparently worked somewhere in the palace because we're told that Solomon recognized his industriousness, his, his work ethic. But that's about all we know. So why would he rebel against Solomon? Well, we're given the reason, and it's kind of an interesting one, Verse 27 says this was the reason why he rebelled. Solomon built the millow and closed up the breach of the city of his father David. Now the millow was a terraced structure built onto one of the hills in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built on multiple hills. And the millow was an attempt to make that hill uh, more useful for construction. So you would terrace it and then you could build things on the terraces. You can still see part of it in Jerusalem. This is a picture of of what's left of part of the millow, one of the terraced structures. So Solomon was, was doing this construction project in Jerusalem. When it says he he repaired the breach of the city, that doesn't mean that there was a, a crumbling in the wall because, again, Solomon hadn't been to war in his whole reign. He was expanding the wall to encompass more of Jerusalem. Okay, so he's, he's benefiting Jerusalem with construction projects. Why would that cause anyone to rebel? Well, verse 28 says that, Solomon appointed Jeroboam over all the forced labor of the house of Israel. So apparently, in order to complete these construction projects, Solomon was conscripting forced labor and using them to construct the millow and the wall. And Jeroboam was put in the awkward position of being put in charge of all of the forced labor of his own tribe, Joseph. Joseph. So he's responsible now for making sure that the people from his tribe are either paying the taxes that fund this or are participating in the work itself. So something about having to work in that environment causes him to be pretty upset with Solomon, and and we can see why. Now, this wasn't new. Solomon had used forced labor from the nation before when he was gathering raw materials for the temple. In 1 Kings 5.13, it says, Now King Solomon levied forced laborers from all Israel, And the forced laborers numbered 30,000 men. So Solomon had done this before, and Jeroboam's not happy about it. So then we get into the the meat of the story here, and and God's going to come to Jeroboam and, and explain what's going on. Verse 29. It came about at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite found him on the road. Now Ahijah had clothed himself with a new cloak, and both of them were alone in the field. Then Ahijah took hold of the new cloak which was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. He said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you ten tribes. But he will have one tribe, for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the sons of Ammon. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and observing my statutes and my ordinances as his father David did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose, who observed my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom from his son's hand and give it to you, even ten tribes. But to his son I will give one tribe, that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen for myself to put my name. Now, most of the story is exactly the same as we saw God explain to, to Solomon. He's just explaining the same thing that's going to happen to Jeroboam. So what do we learn from this? Well, there's a few key things that we need to take out of this. All right, so we see, initially, Ahijah come on the scene. So here's another prophet. We haven't heard from him before. And God says, all right, I need you to go to Jeroboam and explain what's going to go on. So Ahijah does that. And as is often the case with a prophet, he comes with a sign. God often gave the prophets something visible or practical to see so that the target audience would better understand God's intentions. Now, in this case, the target audience was an audience of one. Ahijah found Jeroboam by himself at God's request. But he presents this sign. He has a new cloak on, he takes it off, and he, he rips it up into 12 pieces. And as he's tearing, i got to imagine that Jeroboam is like, what's going on, until he gets to 12 pieces. Now, that has a very significant meaning for any Israelite person. So at this point, he's getting suspicious, and then Ahijah says, you take ten, because ten of these twelve tribes are going to belong to you, and you're going to be king. So Ahijah takes those, he's like, oh, this is sounding pretty good. So he now understands what Solomon has been told. But there's a few key things we need to to look at. Now first, before I get into that, I just got to mention the math for a moment, because some of you are like, the math doesn't add up. Right? He ripped it into 12 pieces. He gave 10 to Jeroboam. He's going to give one to Solomon's son. 10 plus 1 is not 12. Right? I, some of you, like your brains are exploding, the engineers in the crowd, and you've got to reconcile this. Right? So here's the deal. We're going to learn that the one tribe given to, to Solomon's son is Judah. Now, Judah was enormous. It was a large, powerful tribe. The other one that actually maintains loyalty to the house of David is Benjamin. Benjamin was a tiny tribe. It was little. And it had basically no standing army, so it was of not much of an account. So it gets kind of sucked into Judah, and and it's treated as one big tribe. So there's the the reconciling of the math for those that it was bothering you, right? You weren't going to be able to focus until I address that. All right, so what do we need to, to look at the differences here in this story versus the one in Solomon? Well, first of all, we see that in verse 33, God explains the reason he's doing this to Jeroboam. You might think, well, that's not a big deal. That just seems to make sense. But remember that the reason he's doing this was personal for Solomon. He says, Solomon, your divided heart is what's causing this. Your idolatry and the fact that you led the nation into idolatry is causing me to do this. But but that wasn't Jeroboam's issue. He didn't lead the country into idolatry. So God doesn't really have to explain that to him, but he does for two reasons. God wants Jeroboam to understand that, look, if I ripped the kingdom out of the most prosperous, wise king that this nation has ever seen, Because of idolatry, I'll take it from you two for the same reason. He needs Jeroboam to understand the the foundation they're starting with. But the second reason is perhaps even more important. Because by explaining to Jeroboam the reason that he's getting the kingdom is because of idolatry, it lets Jeroboam know this, it's not because you're a great candidate. God doesn't reference anything about Jeroboam himself. He didn't say, look, I'm choosing you because your character is superior. Because your, your understanding, your righteousness, your, your inherent worth is such that you will make a good king. No. God says, Jeroboam, this has nothing to do with you. It's because of the idolatry of the king and the people. You just happen to be the recipient. He needs Jeroboam to understand that. Okay, so that's one thing. But I think the most stark difference in this version of the tale and the one we saw God give to Solomon comes in verse 34. Verse 34, God through Ahijah says, Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life. And then look how he addresses David. For the sake of my servant David, whom I chose, who observed my commandments and my statutes. Now when God talked to Solomon, all he said was, for the sake of your father, David. He didn't give any more details. Why? Because Solomon knew what kind of a guy his dad was. He knew how he focused on God alone. He didn't need to, give any more details, but when God explains this to Jeroboam, he says, look, here are the characteristics I'm looking for in you if you're going to be my king. This is why I'm bothering to keep faith with David. Why I made the covenant with him and why I'm going to keep that covenant with him. Here's the three characteristics, Jeroboam, that you need to understand. The first one, he says, is for the sake of my servant, David, my servant. See David had a servant's heart and a servant's focus. Despite his flaws and sins and they were spectacular, David never deviated from worshiping God alone. He became a murderer and an adulterer, but he was not an idolater. He had a servant's heart. He maintained his focus and God says that is important to me and there is the major difference between David and Solomon. Solomon sinned spectacularly as well, but in his compromise, it led him down the path of idolatry. In David's, it did not. He maintained single-minded focus on his worship. So God says, one of the things I'm looking for is an undivided heart. David had it. Solomon did not. Secondly, he says, my servant David, whom I chose... Now, here is the sovereign hand of God reaching in to the chronicles of men and saying, I'm going to do some things that have absolutely nothing to do with you, whether obedient or disobedient, sinful or righteous. Part of this has nothing to do with you. I chose David. Why? Because I chose David. Because I'm sovereign, because I'm God, and because I have that prerogative. And he says, you need to understand that. That's important. It's not just a fact. You need to acknowledge it. You need to recognize that I am the sovereign one, God says. Jeroboam, I'm putting you in charge. You're going to be a king, but you are not the sovereign. That's me, and you need to get that. And then finally, he says, My servant David, whom I chose, who observed my statutes and my ordinances. He said, look, the other characteristic I need out of you is obedience. And David was obedient, he had a habitual pattern of following the laws of the Lord. Perfectly? No. We know that. But as Tom would say, the regular pattern of David's life was exhibited by following the commandments of the Lord. You go back and read the Psalms and you can see that. I mean, every time he failed, like when Nathan came to him and exposed his issues with murdering Uriah and his adultery with Bathsheba, David repented. It broke him because he was brought face-to-face with his own disobedience. And the Psalms are replete with descriptions of how much he loved God's law, how much he wanted to concentrate on it. That's where we get Psalm 1, 1 and 2. <laughs> how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day day. And night. David loved God's laws, and the regular pattern of his life was obedience. God says, that's part of why I'm keeping covenant with David. And Jeroboam, if you're going to lead, that's what I expect out of you. So there's the characteristics he desires. So then he gets to his conditional offer. He says, okay, Jeroboam, I've explained the situation. Here's what's going on. Here's why I'm doing it. Here's what I expect. So here's the payoff for you, right? What's in it for me, Jeroboam says. Verse 37, I will take you and you shall reign over whatever you desire and you shall be king over Israel. Then it will be that if you listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight by observing my statutes and my commandments, as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build you an enduring house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you. Did you catch the same three characteristics in the offer to Jeroboam that we just covered with David? God says, this is what I want, and here's my offer, but it's contingent on the exact same characteristics. That makes sense. They're in a different order, but it's the same three. Verse 37, God says, I will take you, and you shall reign over whatever you you desire. God says, it's my choice. Just like David, whom I chose, I'm choosing you. And again, it has nothing to do with you, Jeroboam. I'm choosing. My sovereignty has a place here. Then he says in verse 38, that it will be if... Ooh, there's a big word. That little word literally changes the course of nations. He says, if you listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways. What's God saying there? If you listen means if you're looking at me, if you're paying attention. Right? It literally means to submit yourself, to, to put yourself under my leadership, to watch me for your cues... To do what I'm telling you to do, he's saying you need a servant's heart. Like David, I expect you to have an undivided heart focused on me. Servants have one master. That's what David knew and understood. God says you need to listen and be paying attention to me. I need you to have a servant's heart. Same thing he said about David. And then the end of verse 38, And if you do what is right in my sight by observing my statutes and my commandments, exactly the same things he said about David. I need obedience, Jeroboam. Here's the conditional offer. You exhibit these characteristics, and then here's the payoff. The end of 38, then I will be with you and build you an enduring house as I built for David. We need to think for just a second on how startling a promise that is. Do you see what God just promised Jeroboam? He's already made a covenant with David to have a man on the throne forever. He just promised Jeroboam the same thing. (laughs) He just said, I'll make you a lasting dynasty, just like David. We'll have two parallel godly kingdoms. The line of David and the line of Jeroboam, both following me in parallel godly kingdoms forever. He just offered Jeroboam a footing on par with David. That's startling. If only Jeroboam had been a little bit of a different man. That would have changed the course of the history of the entire nation, in a dramatic way. Of course, that's not what ends up happening. So there's the conditional offer, and finally, in verses 39 and 40, we have a small microcosm of what we've seen throughout the entire passage. We have a very visible reminder of God's faithfulness and man's foolishness, exactly what we've seen in the rest of the passage. Verse 39 says, Thus I will afflict the descendants of David for this, but not always. All right, so this is the end of his instructions to Jeroboam. He says, look, David's getting punished, make no mistake, but it's not going to last forever. This isn't permanent. God, of course, is, is hearkening back to that Davidic covenant where he said, David, eventually I'm going to give you someone who's going to sit on the throne forever. It's coming. So I can't leave you in, in a state of discipline forever because I already promised that it wasn't going to be forever says, I'm going to give you back the kingship, and when I give it back to you, it's not leaving again. Ezekiel 37 has an amazing prophecy. Ezekiel 37, so again, this is Ezekiel, this is several hundred years later now, they're already in exile. God speaking through Ezekiel says, Say to the people, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone. And I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land, return from exile. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king will be king for all of them. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. Now again, David's been dead for hundreds of years at this point. But God says, let the people know. I'm going to bring them back from the situation they're in right now. This is hope for them and comfort. And eventually, I'm going to put one of David's descendants back on the throne, and it's going to be forever. That's a great thing. I mean, that, God's showing his faithfulness here in that one little phrase, but it won't last forever in verse 39. I like the way one commentator says it. He said, Verse 39 states this principle in a nutshell affliction, but not abandonment. The rays of hope flicker from behind the clouds of judgment. I like that picture. So we see God's faithfulness. Ezekiel isn't the only one. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, they all have prophecies that start with the return of exile and then fast forward to Christ sitting on David's throne. God is faithful. And then in verse 40, we see the foolishness of of both men. Solomon sought therefore to put Jeroboam to death, but Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt to Shishak, king of Egypt, and he was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now both these men made some foolish choices here. Now think about Jeroboam. Remember I said that Ahijah found him in secret? It was just the two of them and he said, "Look, you're going to get the kingdom, but it's not happening until Solomon's dead. So, you got to wait. Like don't be in a hurry." But apparently Jeroboam couldn't wait. He went out and did something that caught Solomon's attention. He started waving his hand talking about how he was going to be king or maybe he even decided to try to push up the timetable and and you know, perform a military coup and take the throne by force, but he did something to make himself known to Solomon. Remember, Solomon was not given his name, and Ahijah came to Jeroboam in private, but Jeroboam takes matters into his own hand and tries to move up the timetable and take the throne, and what does he get for it? A death warrant. (laughs) Not smart. Then we see Solomon's foolishness, unfortunately. Solomon tries to kill him. So the wisest man on earth was told, look, one of your servants is going to be handed your kingdom by the same God that visited him in person twice. The same God that gave him all the wisdom that caused Israel to skyrocket in global influence. And yet somehow that same wise man thinks, I can probably outmaneuver God. I got this. He's going to elevate Jeroboam. I'll just take him out. (laughs) Oh, how the wise have fallen. God is faithful. We are foolish. So where's the application for us here in this part? For those of you in this room that are in Christ, understand God has chosen you because of his sovereignty. Just like Jeroboam, it has nothing to do with you. It's not because you were smarter than the next guy. You studied your Bible harder. God chose you because he chose you. Because he's God, and we're not. But he chose you because he has plans for you. Just like Jeroboam, he said, Jeroboam, this could be great for you, for the people, for my glory. If you will follow me, here's what's going to happen. Now, Jeroboam chose poorly. But God says, I have plans for you in my sovereignty, and they're good plans. They're for my glory and your good. That's comforting for us. But we do have a response. Just like Jeroboam had the if, you and I have the option to respond to God's offer. And here's what he expects an undivided heart in worship of him alone, right? A servant's Attitude that results in nothing being on the the mounds that we worship other than him, and obedience. Because when we don't obey one of his commands, that compromise, slowly, like a ship turning with its rudder one degree at a time, can lead to some disastrous consequences. But, if you are in Christ, even if he does discipline, like we learned before, he's going to maintain his faithfulness. And he has promised to complete you, never to leave or forsake you, to make you ultimately in the image of his son. Now for those that are not in Christ, you can see the the levels to which God will go in order to mete out his justice. He has the right. But we have opportunities and options to be one of his children and not, not to say no thank you like Jeroboam will do. So I hope as as you progress on this week that you'll think a little bit about what may have made it onto your to worship list. I pray that we can use the Spirit's wisdom to help us see those things and and tear them down. But take comfort, because God is faithful, and everything He's written here about your good and his glory, He will not fail to make happen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise who you are this morning. We praise you for the fact that you are faithful and that you are just. When we sin against you, there are consequences and and you will discipline because you love us as a loving Father. And whatever it is that you have promised to us, you will carry out. Both the ones we like when we are promised good things, but you will also carry out the sentences we don't like when we are disobedient. But we thank you for that, too. Because you do it out of love and out of desire to bring us back into fellowship with you, and we pray that that fellowship would be single-minded with a heart that is undivided, wherein we worship you and you alone and allow nothing else, whether good or otherwise, to usurp your place in our worship. God, may that be on our hearts this week as we seek to walk with you in a more close manner. And God, for those that are not part of your family, for those that that may be here and, and think that is interesting, but I'm not sure that applies to me, I pray that you would open their eyes, that they would have eyes to see and ears to hear about your faithfulness and your mercy and your grace and that they would come to you in humility and acknowledge their need, your goodness, and the fact that Christ alone is the one prophet, priest, and king that can guarantee them entry into your kingdom. Through him and him alone. We pray these things in his name. Amen.